Hey, Sassnacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I'm here to discuss 511 Journey Cake. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassanac Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Season 7 and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 5.11 Journey Cake. Well, this was a heck of an episode, let me just say. I think it's probably one of my favorites of season five. I feel like when I do this little beginning spiel, I always say, this was one of my favorites, or this was not one of my favorites. So I guess it's just like split down the middle. If it's on like the top half of the season, it's one of my favorites. If it's on the bottom half of the season, it's one of my least favorites. But honestly, just to kind of give you guys perspective, whenever I do these episodes, I generally rewatch and I take notes on everything that I think is important to mention in the episode or anything that I have a random idea on a topic to discuss, something like that. Each episode for me is normally about four pages in a notebook front and back. This episode is seven pages and it took me about three hours to watch this episode because I was pausing it so frequently. So lots to discuss. Normally, I have a pattern to what I want to discuss, but honestly, it was just so many different topics that I really didn't have a rhyme or a reason to what I wanted to discuss, so we're just going to go for it. And I think the most important thing to recognize in an episode generally is the general consensus or the theme or the through line of whatever you're watching. And I felt like for this episode, it really was almost a look how far we've come full circle moment. We got so many payoffs to different episodes that we have watched throughout the seasons with Outlander, as well as a lot of character moments where we really got a nice view of the character development that's been going on, not only in this season, but over the course of the show in general. The one moment that I noticed that for the first time as far as character development goes is the scene after the opening credits and the title card where Jamie and Claire and Roger and Bree and Ian and Jemmy are outside and Jamie is contentedly watching Ian play with Jemmy, Roger's doing woodwork, Claire and Brianna are shelling peanuts. It's a very domestic scene. It makes my heart happy, honestly, because we don't get very many of those quiet scenes of the family being the family and just enjoying their time together. Whenever I saw that, I was like, oh, Roger and Brie are finally starting to find their place. And Ian is starting to feel at home again on the ridge. And Jamie and Claire finally have everything that they ever wanted. And the only thing that I wondered throughout this scene and the family dinner scene at the end was, where the hell are Fergus and Marsley? <laughs> because I felt like if you're going to have like those happy family moments, you need to have everybody there. And I just felt like there wasn't a good enough reason to not have Fergus and Marsley there, but it is what it is. So that was really the first moment in this episode that I kind of just looked at it and was like, wow, we really are seeing growth. And it's one of those understated moments where they're not pointing it out with blinkers and neon arrows saying, hey, look at this. See how much our characters have changed? It's just so understated. And seeing Roger sitting there doing his woodwork when he didn't have any skills to speak of at all at the beginning of season five really just sung to me as a viewer. Another thing when we're talking about character growth, particularly when it comes to Roger, is the very beginning cold open sequence when we come across the burnt cabin in the woods. Back in 509 Monsters and Heroes, Jamie and Roger had the entire discussion on how Roger didn't know if he could look somebody in the face and take their life from them. He didn't know if he could bring himself to do that. 
on a personal level. And I think a lot of that conversation between Jamie and Roger was about Jamie making Roger understand that under certain circumstances, there are good reasons for taking someone's life. The beginning of this episode, 511, ties in very well to the end of 510 because you get that interwoven connection of what situations justify killing someone. When we look at the end of 510 and Brianna killing Bonnet out of mercy, it immediately goes in, if you are streaming these episodes and you're watching them back to back, it goes to the cabin and Roger killing this young girl who suffered terrible injuries due to this fire. He's killing her out of mercy. And I really think it goes to show how much of a similar wavelength Brianna and Roger are on and how much they have adapted to this time and this 18th century way of thinking. I mean, in the 20th century, they wouldn't have to make these decisions, right? But in the 18th century, this is kind of how life is. And for them to be on that same wavelength as far as taking life for the sake of mercy. I mean, yeah, you could let someone suffer. You could let them drown and live out their worst fear. You could let them die alone in agony, buried in the ashes of their house with no one to help them. But is that necessarily the right thing to do? So I loved that parallel between Roger and Bree that we're seeing carried out over the course of the end of the last episode and the beginning of this episode. So we're really seeing these full circle moments come into play. The Burnt Cabin is an interesting way to start off this episode. I thought whenever I start this episode, I always forget that this is the cold open. And so it's always a bit of a surprise and I have to remind myself, oh yeah, that's right. The whole point of the burnt cabin is to kind of continue sowing this undercurrent of menace that I was talking about in my last podcast, where you've got the juxtaposition of this perfect, beautiful, surface level, ideal environment in family and nature and everything. But then you've got all of this danger lurking just under the surface. It's always in the shadows, shifting in and out of view. And I think that is what this burnt cabin symbolizes. It's just keeping it in the back of everybody's mind, just under the surface, that, hey, something's really going on here. Something really, really bad is going to happen. The burnt cabin is also interesting because they're wondering why the family is still in the house. And Jamie's like, well, obviously because they were dead before the fire was set. But there's no evidence really of what killed them except for one arrow shaft in one of the dead men's bodies. That's it. Everything else, there's no evidence of foul play, but it's really odd that they're in the house and nobody made an effort to get out. In the books, it's a bit different. There is a cause of death that is determined. One of the women basically fed the other people poisoned soup with like toxic mushrooms. And so it was interesting that they chose not to include that in this episode, but it really does kind of raise the question, well, who the hell killed these people? I don't know if there's room for doubt, but I've always just assumed that it was the Browns. And based on when the Browns show up at the Ridge, assured way that Richard Brown is talking to Jamie about, yeah, there have been these cabins burning down. And have you had anything happen like that around here? And Jamie's like, well, yeah, actually, we just ran into a a cabin that was burnt down down the road when we were coming back from Wollum's Creek. An entire family died. When it comes to the idea of a committee of safety, I don't have a problem with the concept of a committee of safety, because in the time that this show covers the mid to late 18th century in colonial America, it's a real gray area. There is law, but it doesn't really extend out into the Carolina wilderness where the Frasers and the Browns live. They're technically in a colony and they're governed by Governor Josiah Martin, but the sheriffs and the judges and magistrates, whatever you want to call them, they're really located in these pockets of civilization and everything else is straight up wilderness. So if you have a band of thieves or people that want to burn down houses, 
in theory, a committee of safety is going to help keep them from destroying other people's property, endangering other people's lives, etc. I think where the problem lies is when you've potentially got someone with nefarious motives that's putting together this committee of safety. They're doing it to line their own pockets and to puff out their own chests and to make themselves look good. They're not necessarily doing it to protect others, I feel like. I think that's how we were meant to feel about the Browns. Obviously, on the heels of the regulator movement and how much of a clusterfuck that all was, the last thing the governor wants is for something else like that to happen. Like he saw everything that Tryon dealt with, with Alamance and the regulators and everything. So if he's got somebody in the backcountry, namely Richard Brown and his committee of safety, who are theoretically willing to step up and prevent things like that from happening, he's not going to stand in their way. He can't technically sanction it because they're not employees of the crown. They're not supporting the governor in name and in coin. But They are kind of helping to maintain order. And when Brown asks Jamie if he's willing to help them, Jamie says, look, I just spent the last year of my life supporting the crown and helping them to disperse this regulator movement. The last thing I want to do is help you put together a committee of safety, because to be honest, fighting a war and maintaining law and order are two completely different things. I think Brown respects that to a degree, but he's also kind of like, look, I just scratched your back and now I'm expecting you to scratch mine. And you just told me I can go find a tree to scratch my back because you're not willing to help me out. So Richard Brown and Jamie, they they don't necessarily have a good relationship anyway. I think they're cordial to each other because they're both respected men in the province They're both landowners. They both have people that depend on them and their neighbors, technically. So they try to get along, but at the same time, they really butt heads a lot because they have different ideas of doing things. So it's a very interesting dynamic. And then you've got this committee of safety, which is composed of this ragtag group of men. Lord knows what kind of morals and what kind of financial situation they're in. They really just seem very corruptible. And you've got Lionel, who doesn't seem to have the streak of honor that his brother Richard has. At least that's how it appears. I'm not going to stand here and say that the Brown family is stand up. I certainly think that there are certain members of the family that are better than others. But all in all, I think that the Brown brothers leave something to be desired in the way of moral character. (laughs) Let's put it that way. And I think that's all exhibited in how the Dr. Rawlings storyline plays out, right? It's kind of a mess, and it all stems from this little seed that was planted early on in the season with Claire's advice getting mistakenly put the newspaper by Fergus. Now, all of a sudden, it's being broadcast to the world, all of these newfangled ideas about fertility and medication and personal hygiene. It's one thing for you to randomly mention, hey, you might want to wash your hands every now and again. You might not get so sick all the time. So it's a little different from giving that kind of advice versus broadcasting it in the broadsheets that all of these really radical ideas, especially when it comes to the idea of birth control. Lionel Brown's a volatile personality anyway. We saw what happened with Isaiah Morton. And I think that that was the purpose of showing Isaiah Morton and Alicia's story was so that by the time we got to the season five finale, we could fully understand the type of person that Lionel is and how dangerous he really is because he's drunk most of the time. He's a very angry person. He's an abusive person by nature. So really, when we see Claire get kidnapped at the end of this episode, we're like, oh shit, this is bad. But when Lionel Brown's wife tells him, well, Dr. Rawlings says that I could get pregnant if we have sex tonight. So no, I'm not going to lie with you. That was too much for him. So we get this instance where he actually broke her wrist. And whenever she's sitting on Claire's table and Claire's wrapping up her wrist and Rose is telling the story about what happened, one of the best parts of that scene is not the two people that are talking. 
but Marsily, who's holding Rose's wrist steady so Claire can wrap it, and the amount of eye rolls and jaw clenching and just minute background acting that that girl does, like, round of applause to Lauren Lyle. She was fantastic because I really just felt like her facial expressions in general, her body language really just said what everybody as an audience is thinking in that moment. And I love that moment where you see a character that you can just tell they're thinking the exact same thing that you're thinking. It's it's really gratifying to see, in my opinion. One of the things that I love about Outlander is the complexity of all the characters. So that even on a character's worst day, when you think that they're like the lowest of the low, there's still a moment when you see this person might not be so bad. And for me, that moment in this episode was when Claire and Lionel were in the surgery and she was helping to give him clean bandages and stuff for his leg. He said, I'm not saying I had a part in what happened to Isaiah Morton. And she said, well, you're not saying you didn't have a part either. And he says, you think a father's got no right to seek justice for his daughter who's been dishonored? And you can see Claire pause for a moment. And I, as a viewer, pause in that moment as well, because I'm like, did we not just justify watching Jamie do that for the past 10 episodes? Him lie and cheat and do everything in his power to make sure that Bonnet paid for what he did for Brie. We're looking at Lionel Brown as a villain in that moment, when in all honesty, he in his eyes, is just avenging his daughter's honor. The difference being that Brianna was raped and Alicia willingly had sex with this married man. That's the difference. And I think that's what Lionel is failing to see in this situation. But I think it's also pride. And it's also the fact that Alicia cost him a lot of money and property by doing what she did. I don't think necessarily that it is as motivated by love as Jamie's actions were. So I think that's the difference. But it also just kind of makes Claire think because she's like, wait a minute, I just justified to myself allowing Jamie to do the exact same thing. That's what I love about Outlander, that even if things couldn't possibly get worse, there's always still a moment where an actor manages to put a twist on something that their character does to make you think, well, maybe their motivations aren't all bad. Like, maybe there's a sliver of them that's a good person. One of the major topics this episode is the idea of time travel. It's been a huge topic throughout the series. It's the catalyst for the story that we have, right? But in this season, we haven't really got a lot of time travel. I think it's kind of cool in a way that every season we get at least one episode where time travel is incorporated in some way, shape, or form. The exception to that was season six, and I think that's simply because it was a shortened season, unintentionally shortened. They didn't know that it was going to only be eight episodes when they originally cut the script. So I do think it's interesting that every season we get a reminder of why we're all here, essentially. So in this episode, it's kind of cool, though, because, again, we get this full circle moment where for the longest time and at the beginning of season five, one of the big discussions between Roger and Brianna was if we learn that Jimmy can travel through the stones, are we going to go back? And this was a massive through line for them deciding what was right for their family. And were they going to go back through the stones to the future if they could? Was it really safer there? Did it outweigh them leaving their family, etc.? So when we get to 511, we learn that Jimmy can indeed time travel. It's one of the very interesting and like intriguing elements of Diana Gabaldon's universe is time travel, in my opinion. There are so many different little variables that could potentially play into it, but we don't really have a lot of answers. And we learn more about time travel as the series goes and as the characters learn more about time travel. We were kind of hearing some of Brianna and Roger's theories on why the opal broke when Jimmy touched it. And kind of to expand upon what they're saying, they think that possibly because the stone did feel warm to Brianna, Roger, and Claire, but it wasn't hot. And they're thinking that since it was hot enough to crack when Jimmy held it, that could potentially mean that he is Roger's biological son and that 
he is doubly powerful, I guess, because he's the son of two time travelers instead of getting the time travel gene from just one side of the family. It's kind of an idea that they're throwing out there, and I guess it's probably not going to ruin too much to say that I'm pretty sure they end up being right based on some things that we learn later on in the series, particularly in book nine. The idea that there are different levels of power and the different, I guess, quote unquote, supernatural abilities that people can have based on their time travel genetics, so to speak. So um, TBD on that. I'm not going to give too much away. If you want to know more about it, feel free to reach out and ask questions. But it is super interesting that we're starting to kind of get more detail into time travel. The other portion of it, which we've known for a long time, is that there are only certain people that can time travel. And so... Ian finally comes into the picture. He's he's brought into the loop this episode as far as knowing about time travel. And I find it refreshing that he finally knows. I really love that they chose to bring him in on the family secret because for so long, I think he's had an idea that something was off. And he even says, he's like, there's nobody like my Auntie Claire. He is observant, but he's quiet. And he says, you know, I learned early on not to ask questions, but I have a few for you now. Because if you all remember back to when he came into the story again in Famous Last Words, there was something really haunting Ian. He was really struggling with something and he was very deep in grief. And I think it's probably a lot of different things that had compounded to make him kind of draw in on himself and contemplate life and what he knew of the universe and not really be talkative, like be very socially isolated, I guess. And he he did that intentionally. But part of that we've come to learn in this episode is because he had Ottertooth's journal and he knew to some extent something was really funky about this guy And the fact that Claire seemed to know a little bit about this guy and she'd seen his ghost and knowing how much he did about the Mohawk mythology of whoever holds the stones can foretell the future. I really just, I think that became too much for him. Like there were too many questions at that point. He couldn't just keep pushing it off. And I think that this was the perfect time for him to ask, honestly, because it was something that he witnessed first off and second off. He kind of had so many pieces to the puzzle that to some extent he could put it together on his own. And so that's why whenever he's asking questions, he's like, there's something off about you, Claire, and the knowledge that you have and your medical practices and just the way you are in general. And then to see Roger and Bree, and I don't know where they're from either. Like, clearly you guys are are very different from any other person that lives in this time. And then added to the fact that I've got this weird journal written by this guy that supposedly had the same ability to foretell the future. I just need to know. I need to know. I can't keep it on the back burner anymore. I like that they chose not to bring Ian on the secret until Myrta was out of the picture because I think it makes it more special that he's the one normal person besides Jamie that is kind of brought into the loop. And as the series continues, I think more and more people will be brought in. But for now, Ian's the only one besides the time travelers and Jamie that know. I think that that just adds to the characters and the story and the bond that Ian has with each of these people. So I really liked it. Not to mention that I think it just adds a whole other level to Ian's grief, especially when we get scenes between Ian and Claire and Bree at the river when he's asking like, well, can I go back and change things? I just want to change a little thing. Like, I just want to change what happened between me and my wife, but he's unwilling to go into it. But seeing a scene like that and then seeing when he goes to the stones with Brienne and Roger at the end and he tries to go through and he can't, seeing that performance from John Bell and the reaction from Ian for basically being denied his shot at changing what ended up being a terrible, terrible ordeal for him. After seeing season six, that kind of shook me in a different way. 
I will say. I felt really bad for Ian. Like, I knew what happened because obviously I'm a book reader, but seeing it on the screen is just a little bit different. So if you're watching season five on Netflix, because it it just recently dropped, so I know a lot of people are binging it. They were waiting for it to come out. If you want to know what the heck is going on with Ian, please feel free to subscribe to Stars after you're done watching season five. Get your 10-day free trial or whatever it is and binge eight episodes of season six because you'll get your answers. I promise. It's in there. So the time travel element was certainly interesting. Um, Brianna and Roger have a really great conversation kind of related to time travel in that They're thinking of their exit strategy. They agreed earlier in the season that as soon as they knew whether Jimmy could travel, they would go back because it's what was right for their family. They came to that conclusion pretty solidly. They agreed on that finally. So when they're discussing their exit strategy in the cabin and they're talking about they want to be able to say goodbye, I really just felt like it was an authentic Roger and Bree conversation. And I think that that is one of the things that we can credit to Diana Gabaldon, the author of the series who wrote this episode. I 100% think that that's what she brings to the table is a bridging of the gap between book characters and show characters so that we can start to see how they blend together. She kind of blends them seamlessly, although sometimes I do feel like we get a bit of a separation in that sometimes the characters are a bit more book character than show character. Uh, I did notice that just a teeny bit this episode. But overall, the Roger and Bree scene in particular, I thought was extremely interesting because when Bree tells Roger that the opal cracking because Jimmy held it might mean that Jimmy is his son, he says, all I've ever wanted is for us to be a family and for us all to be safe. And we will be, well, safer at least. And then he hugs her and he says, Bree, See, it's not just the dangers. It's living a life we were never meant to. To see that coming from Roger after a whole season of viewers struggling with, why are you the way that you are? (laughs) To not put too fine of a point on it. It's because he's got this inner turmoil. He's struggling between two sides of himself. He's struggling between the side of him that loves his wife and his son and wants to be with them no matter what, and the side of him that is inherently meant to be in the 20th century, period. Those two sides are at war with each other for most of the season, and in this episode, they kind of marry together. And he's like, oh, but they're all one person. And all I want is to be with my family in the 20th century. And Brie finally agrees with me. And so all is right with the world. Jimmy can travel and we're going home. I feel like we see a bit of relief come off of Roger in this episode, to be honest. But one thing that I did find really funny, not funny, intriguing, I guess. One intriguing moment that I found in this conversation between Brie and Roger was another full circle moment. I don't know if you guys remember, but in season one, when Claire is thinking about how best to get Colm and Dougal to believe who she is, she remembers something that Frank told her about interrogation, which is stick to the truth as much as possible. That's what Bree and Roger are doing. Roger even says best to stick to the truth as much as possible. So, you know, they say, hey, we're going to Boston, we're going to be a professor, all of these things so that it's a believable lie, at least. And they don't have to feel like they're completely fabricating this story and leaving Jamie and Claire to explain everything to everybody. I thought that that was one really full circle moment, which I absolutely loved. Another full circle moment was we got the answers to the entire Ulysses thing, Like I said, I felt like 510 and 5'11 married into each other really well. In 510, Gerald Forbes, or I call him Neil Forbes because he goes by both names in the books, tried to kill Jocasta, and in doing so, Ulysses came in and killed him. Well, here's the payoff to that. Way back in season four, you'll remember a little episode called Do No Harm that had book readers rioting in the streets. Book readers hated that episode with a capital H. But this is the payoff for that episode because... A, 
We saw what happens to a black man who sheds a white man's blood. He gets hung. He gets strung up. So Ulysses ran. He ran to Jamie and Claire because he knew that was his fate if he stayed. And B, he also knew that he could depend on Jamie and Claire to hide him and to help him because of what they did for Rufus in 402. He knew he would be safe with them. So in a way, this storyline with Ulysses is the payoff to 402. So like I said before, I feel like there were a couple of moments in this episode where you could really see the book come through. Just I think that's just simply because Diana was writing it. One of those in particular, there were a couple of scenes between Jamie and Claire, which I adore any scenes between Jamie and Claire. And to be honest, as much as I love Jamie and Claire's relationship in the show, it is quite a bit different from the books. Now, I will be the first to admit that I think it is probably the most authentic of the relationships from book to screen. But there are a bit of differences, primarily in the fact that they have a sense of humor with each other and kind of a rapport in the books that it just doesn't translate onto the screen well. And in Diana's episodes that she writes, those things tend to come through a bit more. The love scene in this episode was one great example of that. I'm not sure that this scene, A, would have been included if Diana hadn't written it, and B, if it was included, I don't know that it would have come across the same way, just because Diana has a talent for creating these kinds of things. It's a scene where Jamie and Claire are talking about what they smell and taste on the other person. And it's just got this cute little dialogue back and forth where Jamie's talking about everything that Claire smells like onions, garlic, toadstools, um, peppercorns and dill and cucumbers. And he's like throwing his own little comments in as he creates this list of everything that she smells like. Then she says, oh, well, let me see what you smell like. And she's like, gumpowder, hay, and the faintest whiff of manure. (laughs) It's very manly. Um, This is just the kind of thing that is a regular occurrence in the actual books, and it was good to see. So that tells me that it's not necessarily that the actors aren't capable of bringing that to the screen, and more so tells me that a lot of the writers aren't capable of writing that kind of humor into a script, or they completely choose not to because they want to go with the more dramatic or lovey-dovey scenes, which, I mean, hey, to each his own. I love all of it, so gimme, gimme, gimme. One thing that I did think fell flat about this episode, which was super disappointing for me, trust me, (laughs) was the reveal of the sperm in the microscope. This was one of my favorite moments from the fiery cross. And when I first read it, I about died with laughter, like just rolling on the floor, laughing my ass off. And so when I saw that it was going to be included in this episode, I was really excited. And here is a really good example of how something that is absolutely hilarious on the page just doesn't come across the screen in the same way. And I really think it boils down to two things that I found the most hilarious about this scene that weren't included in the show version. The first being that Jamie is absolutely appalled at the thought that Claire had somehow violated him in his sleep to get this sperm. He didn't even think about the fact that they had sex the night before and that (laughs) she got them from herself. And so like he was just appalled in the books, like just flat out shocked. Whereas in the show, Sam more so just played it off as confused. Which was funny, but it wasn't near as funny as it was intended to be. Um, Second off was that Jamie basically asked Claire to give his sperm a little funeral when she was done doing what she was going to do with him. He was like, well, just take him outside and bury him somewhere nice, will ya? And she makes the comment, I always take care of him, don't I? (laughs) So it's that kind of thing. Just instances where something that book readers really look forward to is included, but not in the way that they expect. So that's where I talk about this purge watch that you have to do as a book reader to kind of get all of your expectations out of the way and then learn to appreciate it for what it is. Another relationship that I absolutely adored was John and Jamie. 
Obviously, every time David Barry comes onto the screen, my heart flutters. Not only is he is a phenomenal actor, he's a super nice guy. And so I just love watching him have acting success on a show and me getting to see it. But I just love him as John, and I wasn't expecting to see him in this episode, but I really felt like this episode was just a cameo of every single person we love on the show coming back to have some sort of pivotal scene or conclusive scene. I felt like a lot of loose ends were tied up in this episode, which is why for me it honestly felt a little bit like a finale until we got to the last sequence of events with Claire's abduction. We got to see John a little bit and we learned that he's going back to England because Lord Dunsany has died. And here we go with another full circle moment. We get a payoff from another episode back in Of Lost Things in season three when we actually met Lord and Lady Dunsany and we met Geneva and William was born and Lord John kind of married into the Dunsany family. This is all things that are being referenced It's in the catalog of Outlander memory, as it were. Last week, I talked about how you can literally go through the file of facts and find an episode that you want to reference and just stick it in there. That happened in spades this episode, and I absolutely loved it. It's one of my favorite things is you're like building off of viewership memory. It's awesome. And so... John is talking about how he came to say goodbye to Jamie because he's going back to England and he doesn't know when he's going to be back. To some degree, I mean, I know that John and Jamie are friends, but to a certain extent, I feel like Jamie fosters his relationship with John in part to have updates on his son, as bad as that sounds. And I don't think at all that like that is the primary reason for John and Jamie's friendship. I don't think that. I genuinely think that John and Jamie value each other's friendships. I know that John is in love with Jamie and that's what complicates things. But I do kind of feel like every time we see John, the first thing that is asked is, how's William? What's William up to? Oh, do you have any news about William? (laughs) I really feel like John is just the conduit for us to keep William in the story. And so I kind of feel bad for him in that respect, primarily because his character is such a rich character and there's so much to know about him that I feel like it almost does his character a disservice to just use him to keep William front and center in people's minds. On the other hand, it also gives us an instance for John and Jamie to share a moment because William is the thing that binds them together. And I think it would be very easy, especially with the forthcoming revolution for them to part ways if it weren't for William. In the scene with John and Jamie, John gives Jamie his miniature of William, which kind of gives us a glimpse of how he's maturing, which I love. But the primary thing about that scene that I take away is when John says, the mood in the American colonies grows darker by the day. And I hope I'm wrong, but I feel a storm coming. And Jamie says, I didn't think you're wrong. It's palpable at this point in history. It's undeniable that something is going to happen, like a storm is brewing. And even Ian mentions it to Bree because whenever they're down by the river, Bree turns to Ian and says, there's going to be a war. And Ian turns to her and says, well, anybody with half an eye can see that. So I think John's whole pretext for saying that, because Jamie asks, well, will William ever come back to Virginia? Will we ever see you again? And John says, I can't imagine that William will never see you again. So it's just dangling that little piece of hope that sometime at some point in the future, William and Jamie will see each other again. But it's also saying like, John kind of being a protective father in that way of like, I'm not going to encourage him to come back right now because it's a real, real shit show in the American colonies right now. And the last thing I want is for my son, who is over safe in England, where he belongs and where his properties and estates are coming back to America when it's so dangerous for him to be here right now. So I liked that conversation, but it also kind of gives us a context for John's state of mind. It also helps us to understand William's situation a little bit, which I feel like is vital, not necessarily for season six, but definitely for season seven, because John is going back to take care of matters at Hellwater because Lord Dunsany has died. 
and Isabel and Geneva, their children, and Isabel and Geneva's brother who died in the Jacobite Rising. All the Dunsany children have passed on, and John and William are all that's left, all that Lady Dunsany has. And especially with William becoming older, I think he's probably like 15, 16 at this point in time. When he reaches his majority, he's going to be an earl. He's going to have two large estates. He's going to have the estate from his mother's side, and he's going to have the estate from his father's side. And that is a lot of pressure. It's not just the property. It's all the people that he employs and all the people that live on his lands. That He's going to have to learn how to run those estates and make sure that everyone is taken care of. And that all falls on Lord John's shoulders to make sure that William is prepared for when he reaches his majority and takes on those estates. So it's vital at this point, since Lord Dunsany is no longer there to be that guiding hand for William, that John goes back to England and kind of takes the reins and shows William the ropes. So I think it was a very good way of making us understand the situation that John is in without creating a whole episode around it, I guess. It just puts things into context a little bit. And it also gave us a reason for Jamie to explain things to Brianna, which I'm still not sure how I feel about all of that, but I do have a theory behind it. So I guess that kind of leads in pretty seamlessly to one of my final topics, which is a broad broad range of topics, really, is all the goodbyes in this episode because it was vital for Roger and Brianna to be able to say their goodbyes to all of these people that have kind of been able to help them while they've been on the ridge and to not leave Claire and Jamie to have to explain things all on their own. That was really important. We were led as an audience to really think that Roger and Bree were going to go back at the end of this episode, which threw us book readers for a loop because... That's not how it happens in the book. Let's put it that way. And so we're like, what the hell is happening? This is not what happens in the book. Are they totally going off script here? Like, am I about to be super pissed off? (laughs) And I know they did it just to keep us on our toes. And Matt Roberts said that there was a reason for doing things the way that they did with that and that we would get that payoff in season six. Having seen season six, I don't really see what he's talking about other than maybe the fact that Brianna and Roger were confident in where they belonged and were able to kind of move forward and embrace their new lives. That's kind of the only quote-unquote reason that I saw for doing things the way that they did at the end of season five. But, you know, maybe I'm missing something. And also, when Matt Roberts made that comment, they intended for there to be 12 episodes in season six when we only ended up getting eight and the final four were tacked on to season seven. So there might be something in those final four episodes that are going to be like a clearer parallel to why season five kind of ended the way that it did. So I'll reserve judgment until I see those four episodes and then I'm probably going to be like, yeah, I still don't see it. Me and everybody else that reads the books, but you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But nonetheless, this episode being what it was, I did like all of the scenes with all of our favorite characters. And like I said, I felt like this was just kind of like a curtain call for all of our phenomenal actors. And that's kind of why I felt like it was a finale in a lot of ways, even though it's not. We got Brie saying goodbye to Lizzie, which just like squeezes my tear ducts and makes my eyes water when I watch it. And this was something that Sophie really fought for because the scene wasn't originally in the script. And Sophie felt that with Lizzie and Bree's relationship being so critical to who her character is and where we are in the show, it would kind of do a disservice to the characters to not have a goodbye between those women. And especially with stars being so focused on like strong female leads and stuff like that, it probably wasn't too hard of a sell. And I tend to agree. It would have felt weird if we had not got some sort of goodbye between Brianna and Lizzie because they are so close. They're kind of like sisters in a way. They're really good friends. And so I liked that scene. And then we kind of get a mirror of it between Roger and Ian. There was also a payoff in this scene because when... Ian comes back into the picture in Famous Last Words. Roger's really going through a dark place. He's not speaking. But when Ian comes back to the ridge and sees Roger again for the first time, they share this embrace and you can see in Roger's face 
all the things that he wants to say, but he's not able to say. It's a very painful moment. Now, in this episode, we get that scene. We hear Roger say to Ian how grateful he is for everything that Ian has done and that they want to show how grateful they are by giving him their land. And, you know, Ian says, I can't, I can't take your land. And Roger's like, well, then look after it for me and do with it what you will. And then Roger says, I hope you find happiness. And I just adored that because these two have been through a lot together, like a lot, a lot. Very, very tragic things in the past year or two. So I think they understand each other probably perhaps more than any two other characters in the show. They've just been down similar paths, I feel like. And so to see that moment where they really do feel like brothers in a lot of ways, it was very gratifying and also kind of, like I said, was the payoff to things that we saw earlier in this season. The big one, probably my favorite scene of the episode, and I also know that it was one of Diana's favorite scenes of the season, is the scene between Brie and Jamie. I feel like it was a very well-written scene, a very well-acted scene. The only problem that I had with it was that I didn't feel like this scene was a payoff to anything. Because a couple of the scenes between Jamie and Brie that were kind of vital to building their relationship in season five were cut. So it really almost felt like bookends where we got a really good scene between Brie and Jamie in the premiere. And then we got a really good scene between Brie and Jamie in episode 11. I felt like most of their relationship building was off screen and we were just expected to believe it as viewers. So that was my only problem with this scene. But honestly, it's not even a big enough problem for me to poo poo it because I really loved this scene, guys. There's so much to unpack in this scene. And I think that. In the books, the news about William, like, Brie having a brother breaks very differently. And I really did like this change because it allowed our characters to sit with it and to talk it out instead of there being this whole, why didn't you tell me? What other kind of secrets are you keeping? It was more a on the level, let's be honest with each other. And it worked better, I think. It really showed the relationship development between Jamie and Brie, it made it more believable when they were upset to be parting from each other. And honestly, I think that it helped Brie to understand Jamie more on screen so that we have something to reference in future seasons when we get another episode where we just get payoff after payoff. Naturally, Brie wants answers. Claire wasn't just going to come out and say, hey, by the way, your dad has a love child. (laughs) That's something that is for Jamie to share in his own time. And I find Jamie so stoic and so honorable in this scene simply because he refuses to say a bad thing about Geneva. And this is a consistent behavior that will happen repeatedly over the course of the next couple of seasons, probably. He'll say an element of truth, but the bare minimum. And what he says to Brie is, it wasn't a matter of love between us, but it was her choice. And that's all I'll say about it. He's letting her know, no, I wasn't in love with her. It wasn't this passionate affair that we had, but it did result in a child. And there it is. And I think that as Jamie tells Brianna kind of the story of who William is and how he can never know that Jamie is his father. I think Sophie did a really good job in this scene in the sympathy in her eyes and on her face because you can really see how Brianna understands how much it costs Jamie to have to sit in silence and not claim his son. Because if he did, if he spoke up, his son would lose everything that he has because he's a bastard. He's not the son of the eighth Earl of Ellesmere as he claims to be. And so while according to British law, if you're born in wedlock, if you're born to a man and a wife that are married, even if you're not that guy's child, technically, you are legally his child. So everything that's his is yours, regardless of if you're biologically that man's son or not. So William is technically and legally protected 
from losing his property, but he's also part of British aristocracy. And for the rest of time, he would be shunned from society. He would be whispered about because he is technically a bastard. Jamie is never going to put William in that position and in doing so is causing himself a great deal of internal pain, I think, that he really keeps to himself. But I think that Bree sees that in that moment, that it really does cost him something to keep that silence. And when Brianna questions why Jamie would tell her now, like he says, I wanted you to ken that there was more of your blood in this world than me and your mother. And that I thought you might want to look him up in the history books whenever you get back to wherever you're going, because he's an earl. He's probably easy to find. I think he knows that he and Claire are probably going to live obscure lives in the backwoods of North Carolina, and there's not going to really be much to find on them. But she can at least find out what William did with his life. And that might give her some sort of comfort. So I loved that on that level, Jamie wanted to give her this small piece of himself to maybe bring her some comfort. But by far the best part of that scene is at the end when we get the callback to a couple of different episodes with Jamie's line. We get a callback to what happened in Dragonfly and Amber in season two, and we also get a payoff for a comment that was made in First Wife when Jamie was telling Claire why he married Leary because he wanted to be a husband and a father and he wanted to show these children, Joni and Marsley, what it is to be in the world, how to get by. And he couldn't do that with any of his children. So I thought it was very fitting that he makes this comment at the end of a conversation with Brianna about William, because these are his two children who he didn't have a hand in raising and he had no say in how they were brought up. That sense of loss over those two children is what propelled him to make such a decision to marry someone else and to be able to have a hand in their rearing. So we do get that callback with this line when he says, when your mother left me with you in her belly, I never thought I'd see you, but I can't, you were there. I was a husband and a father, and now I'm a grandsire. And although I may never see any of you again, you have made my life whole. Oh my God. Uh, Sam Hewen just rips your heart out, doesn't he? Like, he's so good. He's so good at making you feel all the feels. Happy and terribly sad and so angsty. It was phenomenal. I loved that scene. I can easily see why it was Diana's favorite scene of the season, for sure. So Roger and Brie go through the stones, try to TBD on that because we don't find out until the next episode what the heck actually happened to them. But this final sequence is effing crazy, y'all. And I kind of had a feeling that it was going to end sort of this way, especially had a pretty good feel for what our finale was going to be with Claire's sexual assault because of kind of little hints that had been dropped here and there and how they were kind of beefing up the Browns characters a little bit and had cast pretty big names, honestly, Chris Larkin and Ned Dennehy to play these two brothers. So I kind of had a feeling that that was going to be the arc we were dealing with over season five. But man, like this was such an emotional roller coaster of an episode that to end an episode this way, honestly, just made me so frustrated. I was like, man, how many times have I cried this episode and now you're going to leave me on this cliffhanger and I have to wait a week? Um, I can remember vividly when I watched this episode for the first time, but I did really enjoy the final sequence. When Claire was abducted, Marsley puts Jermaine under the bed and says, stay there no matter what happens. And I did see a parallel this episode that I'd never noticed before, where when the Browns show up for the first time in this episode, Brianna carries Jemmy into the surgery and places him on the same bed. Like, that is their safe space, I guess, and to keep them safe. And it's both young mothers protecting their sons from the Browns by taking them to this place. So I thought that was interesting, that it was kind of like bookends on this episode. Whenever Claire's abducted, and Marsley comes after those guys with the scissors and she's knocked out. Lauren actually did that stunt. She was talking about that at Outlandish Vancouver this past uh, winter because somebody asked her about it because it looked so real and how do you do it? And Sophie piped up and said she was bruised like hell for weeks afterwards. And Lauren was saying that you do it in steps. You do the, the hit 
and then you fall off screen and there's a mat that you fall on, like a cushion. And then you do the portion where you fall onto the bricks. And she said that the stunt team, she worked with them a little bit on like, you have to twist your shoulders just right so that your shoulder takes the brunt of the impact instead of your face. The bricks in the floor were actually replaced with like a rubberized brick that looked real just to kind of cushion it a little bit. But she said she was still bruised for days afterwards. But it looked great, didn't it? So there's your little behind the scenes tidbit on that. When all the men come back from trying to salvage the still and little Jermaine is standing by himself out in the yard waiting for them, Fergus comes up. He's like, what are you doing out here? Like, where's your mom? And he says, mama won't wake up, papa. And Jamie says, where's your granny? And he says, the bad man took grandmama. And oh shit, like you can see the panic start on Jamie's face. And then the next shot you get is him running full tilt toward the surgery so hard that he has to catch himself on the door and push off to get where he's going and not run past it. And he sees Jordy, the guy that they were working on, and Marsley laying on the floor in the surgery and Claire's gone. Fergus is all eyes for Marsley, like, oh my God, she's breathing, she's alive. And Jamie's just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You can see it. His eyes are so wide. And I love that the next shot was him running full tilt up the cliff with his torch to light the cross. I thought, you know, that is a fan-freaking-tastic bookend if I have ever seen it. We start the beginning of the season with the whole purpose of the Fiery Cross is to draw them into the ridge when they want to do battle. And damn if we didn't get a payoff in the biggest way for that with Jamie lighting the cross. And look how many times he had the opportunity to light the cross in this season. Sam Hewen posted after episode 11 aired, he posted on social media, he lights the cross for Claire. That just says so much in that statement because, like I said, Jamie could have lit the cross any number of times to draw his men to him, particularly with Alamance when he was calling his militia and he didn't. He swore he wouldn't light the cross again until they were ready to do battle and he's going to go to battle for Claire. I just... Mm, go get up, Jamie. You know? It's great. I love that. Like, honestly, this is one of the best if not the best penultimate episode of Outlander, period, in my opinion. I think the only one that really holds a candle to it in any way is season one with Wentworth Prison. But yeah, in my opinion, this one's the best. So that wraps up what I think about 511 Journey Cake. Performance of the episode this week hands down an ensemble performance because we literally got every person (laughs) that we could have possibly had in this episode in some way, shape, or form, whether it was David Barry, Lauren Lyle, Cesar Domboy, Colin McFarland. Oh, just add them up, really. There were so many people. Caitlin O'Ryan, then you've got your headliners. You've got Sam Hewen and Katrina Balfe, Sophie Skelton, Rick Rankin, yada, yada, yada. I could go on and on. And they were all fantastic. I don't think anybody had a bad acting moment in this episode. So 10 out of 10. Quote of the episode was, life is long, maybe someday. And you know what that was referencing was maybe someday I will get to tell William about you is what John is telling Brie. And I'm just, oh, it's words that we're all clinging to, right? Maybe someday. Anyway, so that wraps up my thoughts. As always, I opened it up to you guys to let me know what you thought on 511. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Becky Hartwell says, I absolutely loved when they told Ian the time traveling news. It was such a special family bonding moment. The goodbyes are always the worst. I cry at every single one. I think the episodes that Diana writes are so much more special and heartfelt because it's her story. It was such a great episode. I mean, I think that she puts her heart and soul into everything that she writes. I think that's pretty evident in how well it's done. But yeah, there's something special about her episodes for sure. And like I said, I think it's just... The magic of her being able to marry these people that we see on the screen every week to the characters that are in her books and really bring them to life in a way that really only a couple of the screenwriters can do. 
Regina Geisert says, love this episode. I cried at the burned cabin scene. I loved how baby Ian finally got let in on the time travel secret and Brie was finally told about Willie. I absolutely hate the Browns and their quote unquote committee of safety. Lionel is a freaking evil creep. I laughed so hard at the scene in Claire's surgery when she showed Jamie the sperms and the ensuing conversation. The goodbyes made me cry, especially the goodbye between Brie and Lizzie was so heartbreaking but that hug between Brie and Claire said it all without words. The lightheartedness of the peanut butter and jelly dinner was like the calm before the storm, one more moment of light and laughter before Claire gets kidnapped. I could feel the emotions when Jamie discovers she was taken and subsequently running to light the cross to call his men to arms. So much to discuss, and it very much has Diana Gabaldon written all over it. Yeah, the goodbye between Brie and Claire. It was so good in such an understated way, I feel like, because we got the goodbye between Brie and Claire once already in Freedom and Whiskey. And again, with the payoffs, all the things that we have this history with the show that are coming back and informing the showrunner and the screenwriter's decisions in this episode. And so we got Claire and Brianna's goodbye in Freedom and Whiskey and everything that they wanted to say to each other, everything they wanted the other to know. And in 501, we got that reference to, you know, I never thought that I'd get this day. I never thought I'd get to walk my daughter down the aisle or, you know, see my grandchildren be born. And so we've come to this full circle moment where Claire and Brie are having to say goodbye again. And just because they've done it once doesn't mean it's any easier because it's a different kind of goodbye this time. Claire had all of these moments with Brianna that she never thought she'd get. She got to see her grandchild. She got to see Brianna married. And it's been beautiful, but it almost makes it that much harder. And so that hug, that embrace, it saves us the conversation repeat but also tells us everything that they're feeling that it's just, it's too much for words at that point, the level of love that they feel for each other and how badly they're going to miss each other. The peanut butter and jelly. Okay, so I do have a comment about this. The peanut butter and jelly is kind of amazing (laughs) in a lot of ways. It's a very ingrained part of I don't want to say like Outlander mythology because I feel like that's putting too much of like a mystical spin on it, but peanut butter and jelly is ingrained in the Outlander universe. So this was another full circle moment because in Freedom and Whiskey's title card, it is Brianna making those peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that she references in this episode for Claire to eat. That's Freedom and Whiskey's title card. And then this episode, Journey Cake's title card, is Claire eating those peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in Edinburgh before she goes to meet Jamie, which is straight out of the books. We get all these references to peanut butter and jelly and how it is important. And it's, as Claire says, the future's answer to journey cake. It's easy, it's packable, it doesn't go bad, and it's delicious. To kind of see that Claire wants to make peanut butter and jelly, not only for nostalgia's sake, but because she feels that it's integral to who they are and how they were raised and she'll be damned if Jimmy grows up not tasting peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I really did adore it. Plus the dinner scene where they're all eating the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches is just phenomenal. You're right, Regina, because Sam is hilarious in that scene, especially when he goes to cut the sandwich with the knife and the fork. They were going to cut that out. Sam just did it. It wasn't in the script and they were going to cut it out. And I guess Diana saw it in dailies or something or she was on set. I'm not really sure how it went down, but she was like, you cannot cut that out. That is genius. Like you have to leave it in there. So it stayed. And man, if it's not one of the best parts of the episode, like it was so good. So yeah, all around, that was really great. Final comment of the night is from Casey Filson. She says, I forgot how much I love this episode. It hits all the feels, Ian's pain and understanding it more after learning the cause. Jamie's heartbreak over the max leaving, you have made my life whole. The amazing, sweet, precious sex scene, Jamie running to light the cross to rescue his beloved. I absolutely love Lord John's line to Brie of, you really are impossible not to like. And the dinner scene with all of them together eating PB&Js. The song in the background couldn't have been more fitting and perfect for the events going on. And I loved Jamie's lighthearted humor for a bittersweet moment. 
I don't think I'm remembering everything, but this is an emotion-packed episode that hits the feels on all levels. Unless it's pointed out to me, I sadly don't remember who writes which episode, but Diana is just talented the whole way around and really checks all the boxes, especially in this episode. The scene with John and Brianna was really good, and I feel like those scenes... They had such good chemistry in season four with the scenes at River Run that the writers try to get a John and Bree scene in there whenever they can. And I really felt that this particular scene between John and Bree was great because, like I mentioned earlier, there's a small part of me that kind of feels like John is there only to bring news of Jamie a lot of the times, like as far as his purpose in the story. And in the scenes between John and Bree, John has more of a chance to express his love for his son. And we really do begin to understand that John loves William for William, not because he's Jamie's son. And I think that is very critical for us to understand as an audience that yes, John loves Jamie. He would do anything for Jamie, but raising William is not something that he's doing for Jamie. He loves William, honestly and truly, deeply, as a father and would do anything for him. So I think that that, more than anything, was an opportunity for us to see that in this scene with John and Bree. All right, guys, that wraps up my episode on 511 Journey Cake. No new news this week other than the fact that season five of Outlander is now available to stream on Netflix. So if you have only seen seasons one through four, head on over to Netflix and check out season five. It's really great. Other than that, don't really have any new news on the Outlander front. So I'm going to sign off of here for the week. I'll be back next week to discuss 512, the season five finale, Never My Love. Also, do not forget on May 28th at 4 p.m., I am going live with Angela Hickey from Outlander Cast Clan Book Club and Queen Bee's Hive on Patreon. We're going to discuss everything we loved and everything we maybe hated about season five on that live episode. You can get in on all the action by joining my Facebook group, TSF Obsassinax. Just head on over, answer all three of the admission questions, and agree to follow the rules, and someone will approve your request shortly. And with all of that, I'm heading out. You guys stay safe out there, and I'll chat at you next week. Have a good one.